Welcome to the Perfectly Integrated Podcast, hosted by Matt Ackerman, where we show the power of teamwork in wealth management. Now, on to the show. This pandemic has been a roller coaster ride for markets, investors, and the financial advisors sitting at the helm. And never before have so many advisors, like so many of us working from home, felt more trapped on their own little islands. So what could the long-term impact of this pandemic be on advisors and the independent movement? Welcome back to Perfectly Integrated. I'm Matt Ackerman. And today I'm joined by my good friend, Brian Hamburger, who's going to help us sort it all out. Brian's the founder, president, and CEO of Market Council Consultant, and is also the founder and managing member of the Hamburger Law Firm. I don't think I'm overstating things when I say Brian is a true advocate for the independent advice movement. He is a thought leader. He's been in this industry for more than two decades. In 2020, he was recognized as one of the industry's true innovators by Investment News in their 2020 class of icons and innovators. And he's widely uh, recognized as one of the real architects of the industry's most high-profile breakaway deals. But for me, Brian's just another Jersey guy who I knew I liked right away when I first uh, had a shoot with him back in 2010 because he started busting my balls right away and it hasn't stopped since. He's one of about, I think, three people that I can count that I think I could wake up in the middle of the night with a camera or a microphone and begin asking him questions and be thoughtful, cogent, and interesting, no matter what. So, Brian, architect, advocate, innovator, thought leader, the hell are we talking about today? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for inviting me to the program, man. I'm not quite sure I could live up to that introduction. Uh, buddy, I, I am so happy to finally be chatting with you like this. And in this kind of uh, area, usually our conversations are limited to like three minute bursts. So this is really fun to do where we get to actually uh, chew on a, a topic here for about 30 minutes. So you know, you, when you invited me, you told me this is only going to be a 30 second interview. So it's not. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to make you answer lots of questions today. So like, I, I guess I'd like to start by just setting the scene a little bit. Uh, you know, it was 2019, you and I are probably sitting there having a meal together at, at the Mark Council Summit in December. And where was the independent advice movement at that time? Oh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, I'll tell you, this pandemic has been going on now for, uh, for a little over a year, and it feels like it's been 10, right? Because I think of that mark in time, that moment in time where, uh, where we were sitting there talking about it. And we, of course, uh, would always look at the opportunities and we'd look at the hazards, but never did a hazard like this appear uh, on the radar, e- even for the most ardent of planners. And uh, and I think that just goes to show you that, you know, you can't plan for these black swan events, these, you know, once every hundred year events, but y- you ought to plan that they're going to happen, right? That there's going to be a disruption that's outside of your field of vision. Uh, and um, I don't think we did at the time, right? We were talking about where different threats were going to come from, but never did we think it was going to be a broad threat that was going to impact human life in the way it did, global economy in the way it did, the, the way we look at uh, healthcare, the, w- the way that people look at life and the, you know and what they value. Little did we know, right? How ignorant we were sitting there in our own little bubble, uh, you know, enjoying a drink, enjoying a meal, and uh, and not thinking about uh, these hazards that uh, that laid in front of us. So, did the pandemic halt? deal making altogether? Did it like stop people in their tracks? Did they just get comfortable in the status quo? What was the impact? Well, um, you know, it wouldn't be fair to say that it halted it altogether, but it also wouldn't be fair just to gloss over the immediate shock that that it had. So certainly early on, 
everything stopped, right? People froze in place. They just didn't necessarily know what to do. But let's not look at that four to six week period of time. Let's look at what we've, you know, really what we've seen looking back in the last, uh, you know, year plus. There is no doubt that the pandemic is going to leave an indelible mark and have a lasting impact. Uh, but it hasn't changed everything as, as a whole bunch of folks continue to, uh, to shout from the rooftops. In many ways, it's really been an accelerant of trends that we've been tracking for years. So uh, to answer your question directly, I think after an immediate halt, I think it became a sprint. Uh, and it's been a sprint for the better part of a year uh, in, uh, in the independent wealth management space and the rush to join the independent wealth management space. So why was that? Um, do you think, what, what caused, did more people start to really think about making a move? What caused that? Well, after the shock and awe, I think, uh, I think folks who are attracted to independence are optimists uh, at their core. Uh, and I think they're focused on the opportunity, right? I mean, and, and I'd say investment advisors more broadly tend to be focused on opportunity, right? They're looking for companies that have an opportunity for growth. That's where they uh, spend their, uh, their days and nights. This pandemic did present opportunity amidst the devastation that uh, that it caused. Uh, we've you know we've learned and in, in looking at uh, not just the pandemic but even recent history before that that tumultuous periods tend to do more to expose weaknesses of large enterprises and institutions than they do for small, more nimble companies. Right? They they really highlight a lot of the benefits of independence, uh, probably uh, unknowingly. Uh, and, you know, we look back at 2008 when I talk about recent history, uh, where obviously there was some great tumult uh, caused by the, the market downturn in 2008. But that was caused by bad actors in finance, right? It was caused by banks, broker dealers, advisors, uh, mortgage providers, and um, regulators responded with enforcement and rulemaking. And, you know, I'm sure there's some kind of conspiracy theory out there that I haven't yet heard. But the pandemic of 2020 wasn't caused by these same actors, right? There, it was, it, there wasn't um, anyone to point to in the financial sector that would say, you are to blame. So as a result, while we had that short-term uh, impact, the, uh, the focus, <laughs> unlike 2008, wasn't on the financial sector. And so I think we quickly started to see the seeds of innovation and growth in the industry. And that's really it. Seeds of innovation and growth, uh, opportunity amid the devastation. And we've started to see kind of that deal making happen again. We're starting to see it kind of flood back. Is there a specific area where we could see more opportunities? You mentioned especially, you know, the kind of that nimbleness of the smaller firm. What did you see as kind of um, where the most opportunity lies right now? I think that book is still uh, that that book or chapter, uh, however you look at it, is still being written. I think that these dark moments in time they breed sustainable and highly resilient firms. Um, you know, we've learned that the best firms tend to rise from adversity. Uh, it's when some of the most lasting brands are created. I mean, in our space alone, you know, you look at the impact of uh, of the market downturn in two thousand eight and what what emerged from that. Right, we had. We had firms like Luminous Capital, uh, who uh, went on to sell to First Republic Bank. Uh, we went, uh, we saw Betterment arise from the ashes of 2008. Uh, Dynasty Financial Partners, Hightower Advisors, you know, all, all these companies are 2008 babies. Uh, and then broader, outside the securities industry, we see companies like, 
you know, small companies like Uber and Dropbox, right? I mean, emerge from, from these ashes. And so I think you're looking at, you know, opportunity in general, breeding, uh, you know, breeding itself in the, during this pandemic. I don't think that it's focused in any one area. Um, I think that you're seeing, I think that you're seeing um, uh, existing firms start to really get their recruiting engines humming. I think you're seeing uh, private equity continuing to do deals uh, in the space, along with uh, serial uh, aggregators or roll-ups. Uh, I think you're seeing acquirers start to kind of get their groove on uh, in the space. And, you know, despite some of the headlines, I think you're still seeing some of the most impressive teams that we've ever seen before make their way over from captive employment over to independence. So I think we're really looking at a broad-based uh, uprising of the independent wealth management space. And that's so interesting. You mentioned how opportunity cr is created, creates innovation. You mentioned Uber and Dropbox and now even platforms now today like Zoom that people have become really, I'm not going to say reliant on, but accustomed to and comfortable with, and that creates new opportunity as well. Um, what are some of these lessons learned from this pandemic that perhaps could spur greater change as we move further down the pike? Yeah, I think the lessons learned, reminders, I think, you know, there's there's an awful lot of reset going on uh, during this pandemic. I mean, first and foremost, volatility in the markets simply increases the demand, the appreciation uh, for objective advice. And right now, you know, with sky high valuations in the market, uh, investors are unsettled, right? They want good advice. You know, they don't, is it time to sell? Is it time to diversify? Just like they needed advice when, you know, when the market went, uh, went to bottom in, uh, in March of 2020. Uh, and then on the flip side, looking at clients, the past years have finally created this awareness amongst clients on the value of that objectivity and the impacts that conflicts of interest have, right? Because if they can't trust their advisor, then really, what are they paying for, right? If their advisor's riddled with conflicts of interest, then it's not advice at all. It's merely access to the equity markets or the securities markets uh, in, in general. So I think we've learned a lot of lessons. I think we've, we've also seen, you know, we've also seen this pivot, right? We've seen that, um, uh, that clients aren't traveling right now. They're home, right? And their, their capacity and their ability to interact with their advisor is pretty substantial. Uh, they actually want to talk to their advisor, right? They're available to sign documents. You know, staff uh, and the whole work from home thing, well, it, it's pretty cool, right? I mean, tur turns out that the, you know, that the biggest problem with a work from home environment tended to be the bosses, you know, the people that were running the firms, you know, and I'm raising my hand when, uh, you know, when, when I say that, I mean, I was, you know, I was not a uh, proponent of a work from home environment, but man, I mean, staff are focused. They've got more bandwidth to support a transition. You know, we are laser focused on our objectives. Uh, we've honed our communication skills. We've uh, we've upped our game when it comes to collaboration. Uh, you know, it it turns out that work from home wasn't really a fear of whether people would be working. It's how do we how do we change our skill set as managers to get them uh, working and to be able to actually uh, measure uh, productivity from afar. And let, I mean, let's talk about that work from home for a minute, because I think it also put these advisors in a unique situation um, as they looked around and said, hey, I, I can do this all on my own. What the heck am I paying for to work for this big brand company when, you know, I'm home and I, I can do all this. So do you think that 
work from home mindset made them realize they can do this on their own. They can be independent. It was funny. Uh, funny you say that. It, uh, it was back in the middle of last year where an advisor uh, said to me, uh, you know, it just occurred to me that my clients aren't with me because my office is in the nicest building in town. <laughs> you know, and and I think that's somewhat common, right? I think people, uh, some people assume that that their clients uh, had confidence in them because they were in this beautiful A space building uh, in the middle of uh, of downtown or on the top floor of this other building, right? You know, some some glorious real estate, and you know, it turns out they weren't. Um, so you know, they've really taken inventory on what is the company furnishing. The very first breakaway I ever worked with came out of, uh, came out of Merrill Lynch. Um, and I was so intrigued by this. It was over 20 years ago. <clears throat> and I still remember him to this day. And we went to lunch after the transition. I say, so I never asked you this question. Why did you decide to leave? By the way, it's not the first question I tend to ask uh, folks in the, in the transition, but I hadn't asked them. And he said, you know, it was quite simple. He goes, it was, uh, it was an economic discuss uh, discussion I had with myself in my head where uh, when I first joined the firm, that business card, that logo would open doors for me, that uh, it would give me the ability to get into meetings um, and, um, and discussions that I didn't belong in, right? That quite frankly, they wanted, they wanted the expertise of my brand uh, to come with me. But I found over time that I was the one opening those doors and keeping my business card in my back pocket longer and longer and only grudgingly bringing it out. And then at the end, it was bringing it out, hoping that it didn't derail the relationship that I just built, right? He said, once we got there, I knew that I can't be paying them what I'm paying them to do what they're doing, because in fact, they're not lending anything to my business, but they're detracting from it. And I think a lot of advisors are somewhere in the midst of that pendulum trying to assess how much value is this firm, is this brand actually bringing to me, delivering to me? So over the last 20 years, has that reason to leave, has it evolved? Has it changed? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I don't think it has. I think it's the same exact issues that uh, uh, that we continue to encounter, right? Is at what point does the firm that you're working for uh, no longer earn their keep? Uh, and it's pretty much as, as simple as that. Now, there can be people that come to us for different reasons and certain broker dealers right now are changing their, uh, their policies or maybe they're changing their comp plans. And so there's, there's a different spark Right. But that spark only takes them so far. Right. You know, someone deciding to leave because they're mad at their branch manager. That's not a sustainable issue. They have to be running towards something. And I think that that continues to this day. You know, so the subtopics may be different, but I think that continues. Absolutely. It's been such an interesting evolution here. This looks like such a prime opportunity right now that exists in terms of moving but what are some of the obstacles? What are some of the hazards that exist here uh, along this path to independence? You know, it's um, there's always hazards along the way, right? And I think part of part of moving from an employee to uh, an entrepreneur or someone on the independent, uh, in, someone joining the independent wealth management space, is to open your eyes fully and actually recognize that there were always risks, right? There were always hazards, and now the biggest difference is you have an opportunity to decide which ones to accept or not. Whereas when you were working at a firm, those hazards existed, but someone else made that decision for you. I think it's the work from home thing that tends to settle people in and create hazards that didn't exist before the pandemic. So there's a bit of a false sense of security that we're seeing uh, that somehow 
because the advisor's working from home, that there's less supervision, less monitoring, less oversight, while in fact, it's actually quite the opposite. Uh, because, because there's only one path into the office, which is typically over either a VPN or some type of internet connection, the fir firms can monitor everything and they're doing it, right? They're stepping up their game with respect to supervision and monitoring. And so uh, they're picking up on small aberrations that the advisor may not even detect themselves, right? Increases in prints, uh, you know, when people go to access HR uh, in uh, a strange number of times. Um, so, you know, we continue to remind our clients that um, the, what was wrong in the office is wrong remotely, uh, that the duty of loyalty remains despite these blurry boundaries that we uh, that we currently have. Uh, if you have a duty of loyalty, you know, you got to work for your employer, right, uh, as long as you continue to collect a paycheck from them. And you can't uh, find yourself spending your days and nights planning for your move to independence while you're still, you know, uh, garnering that, uh, uh, that paycheck. I, I think advisors are often shocked to find out that the certificates and the profiles that they have on their phones and their computers give their employer really broad license and permission to track their activities and monitor what they're doing throughout the day. Uh, and uh, they often learn that uh, when we are in a full-blown dispute following their, uh, th their departure. So I, I think that's, that's a hazard, right? It's a hazard to, to be lulled by that false sense of, uh, of security. And, and Matt, I think on the other big hazard that I'd mentioned applies for everyone, including not just captive employees, but independent contractors, because independent contractors may be without employment restrictions, but they also have to tend to regulatory and contractual obligations, the biggest of which, the lightning rod of which is data security, right? So privacy and data security are, you know, the new defensive tactics that firms are utilizing. It's no longer in favor to, uh, to file a TRO when someone leaves and try to stop them based upon restrictive covenants. Some firms still do, but judges tend not to enjoy these cases. But when the firm comes in and says, well, we're not here just for that, Your Honor. We're here because we're here to protect the privacy and, and, the, and the data of our, uh, our dear customers against this person who's looking to abscond out the back door with them. Right? That's a far more sympathetic uh, argument to put in front of a judge nowadays based upon uh, headline risk. It's so interesting that you mentioned some of those risks. I think it was easier before work from home to delineate and put a hard line as an advisor between, hey, here's my here's my uh, current working environment. Okay, now I get home at night and I can work on thinking about moving to independence. Yes, um, that blurring that line has to have created some real um, problems that you've had to encounter over the last yeah. fifteen months. As a matter of fact, the conversation I just had last night uh, with uh, with a transitioning advisor. Is uh, was this the availability of data doesn't mean it's free of encumbrances, right? Because you know it was it became one of those conversations of well, how are they going to know? And I already it's already sitting on my computer or it's sitting on my uh, on my phone. Understand that when firms, you know, brokerage firms and regulators are unified in their efforts on an issue like data security, they are a formidable force, right? They often don't work in concert with one another. But when the interests of firms and the interests of regulators is aligned, you don't want to go against that. Um, and so one of the most common areas we see is uh, recruiting, for, not recruiters, but firms that are recruiting advisors are looking to solve that by what we call the third-party trap. They're looking to say, hey, we don't want to touch the data because we know that it's the third rail, but why don't you give it to this third party, right? This third party will help you prepare for uh, transition. 
And lo and behold, once you transition, that third party will then uh, give it to you and you can give it to us. Well, no, I mean, it just doesn't work that way, right? That third party has absolutely no basis uh, to be touching that data. They're not a registrant. So if the uh, if the SEC or FINRA would have been concerned that a, that a recruiting firm uh, would have uh, been helping you with the data or a firm that was recruiting you in, they're definitely going to be concerned that, you know, some one or two man shop uh, sitting in someone's basement uh, is holding on to such uh, such sensitive data. It's a problem. And it's a problem that the regulators are looking at. It's a problem that uh, that firms that are losing uh, their employers are uh, are looking at. And, uh, you know, they're coming after pretty hard. We're sitting here now, like you said, hopefully nearing the end of hopefully we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. What's what's your outlook from here? What do you anticipate? Um, you know, could we anticipate a whole surge of deals in the next six months? What's your outlook? I think, well, I think we've already started to see it, right? So starting, starting right before the middle of last year. So I'd say, you know, May uh, to June of uh, 2020, we started to see uh, deals pick back up. And when I say deals, you know, again, broadly deals, right? People that were leaving captive employment, moving over to independence, people that were joining existing independent firms, uh, deal-making in the space in terms of business combinations and new investments. And I think every month since then, we've seen a continual, uh, we've continuously seen an uptick. Uh, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to um, speculate here that, that that's going to continue. There's really, there's really nothing that, uh, you know, that I see that can stop this long-term progression. Now, granted, we just started off this discussion by saying, well, we didn't see this pandemic coming. So, you know, I really mean that literally. There's nothing I can see that will stop this uh, this long-term progression. Because just like we talked about firms and uh, regulators being aligned on the issue of data securities, when, when RAAs, when independent RAAs and clients are aligned on the purpose of increasing objectivity, decreasing conflicts of interest, in increasing transparency, all things that inure to the benefit of the client, right? That's an unstoppable force. So yeah, you know, broker dealers and trust companies and banks, they, they put, put up a formidable uh, defense with regards to uh, marketing campaigns and, and sales efforts. But when you really align the interests of the client, I don't see how you stop that because as clients become more educated and, and more involved, because uh, not just educating the clients, they're not stupid. It's, it's that they also need to be interested in it. And I think they are getting more and more interested in it. Uh, when that happens, I think you just create a, a force that's unstoppable. Yeah. The unstoppable force. I, I really do believe this, this movement's going to continue. I agree completely with everything you're saying. And, and to be very honest, I, I can't wait to get to the other side of this tunnel. I can't wait for us. You don't realize how much you enjoy being around this industry and back on <laughs> than, than when you don't have it. So I'm so excited too, that the Mark Council Summit's set to be back in December too. I'm, I'm really excited just to be back in this industry, seeing folks and, you know, see where we go from here. It's really exciting. December 6th in Miami will be exciting. And uh, I'll and I'll tell you, Matt, you know, I, I'm enjoying the prospect of both, right? I mean, I think work from home has allowed us to have, you know, extraordinarily productive and uh, days that are packed with uh, density. But, uh, but man, I mean, that's, you know, that, that, that can't be, it. you know, that can't be it, right? There's got to be the handshakes and the hugs and being able to see people face to face. I, I don't think I, I, I never realized how much I really enjoyed that aspect of our business and the 
the true community that we've built within the independent wealth management space is something that I'll never take for granted again. Absolutely. Me either. So we close every episode the same way with a question from my nine-year-old son, CJ. I just took him on his first business trip. We went out to Colorado. It was a lot of fun. I got to tell him a little bit about you and uh, how long we've known each other. So his question to you was, so why does New Jersey get such a bad rap? He went to Colorado with me and he said, I just went to Colorado and they tell New Jersey jokes there too. What's your favorite thing about New Jersey? Hmm, all right. So first of all, the, I'm most surprised because most nine-year-olds, when they're given free license to ask me questions, it's usually about my last name. It's about hamburger. He he um, did have he did have questions about that. I actually uh, I pulled that. You one edited back. him. <laughs> it's the first time I edited him. It's the, he, he had a question here. His other question was, "What's the what's the worst nickname you had to deal with growing up with a name like Brian?" Well, hamburger. I can't give you the worst one. That's not appropriate for this uh, for this podcast, but. Uh, uh, and I can't, I, I can't actually give you that that uh, that nickname because then I'd have to change all my password uh, reset uh, <laughs> questions. But uh, but I, I think Jersey gets a bad rap because we wanted to, right? Uh, I think that there is so much to love about New Jersey um, that what we've done is, you know, we've put the most um, traveled areas of New Jersey in the ugliest parts of the state. Right. For for those of you that know New Jersey by way of the, uh, you know, the New Jersey Turnpike. Well, good for you. That's why you kept driving uh, either to Philadelphia or New York City, depending upon the direction. Uh, but if you were to get off the turnpike, you would find, you know, some of the most beautiful neighborhoods and downtown areas that you'll come across in uh, anywhere uh, in the in the U.S. Uh, it's proximity to New York City uh, allows me to enjoy all the benefits of New York but get the hell out of Dodge when, uh, you know, when, when I'm, when I'm all said and done there uh, access to the airports, but to answer CJ's question, my favorite part about New Jersey is the amazing uh, uh, different types of food uh, and ethnic cultures that, uh, that are just genuine and authentic and legitimate and, and really, really make your time that's not spent, not working really just make it uh, absolutely interesting. I got to say, because I've known you so long, coming, giving him so much about you, there was tons of little questions he had. We talked about your boat. We talked about you have spending time at the University of Miami. Like it, it's, it was so much fun telling him all about you that I, we had a great time on the flight last night, let me tell you. All right, well, I can't wait to, uh, can't wait to see him in person. <laughs> absolutely. Brian, always a pleasure connecting with you. You are Always one of my favorite folks to talk to. Thanks so much for joining us today. Content in this material is for general information only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Integrated Partners, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from LPL Financial. Brian Hamburger is the CEO and founder of Market Counts Consultants and is a separate entity and not affiliated with Integrated Partners and LPL Financial.